Good morning, church. So we are in a new series uh, as of a a couple weeks ago, Asking for a Friend. And um, like the title suggests, we we are asking questions that our friends are asking. Uh, And it's it's not like the common asking for a friend when you're really asking for yourself, although that may have happened. Uh, The hope is that we would see as a people who who intend to live life on mission uh, that we we have questions that need to be answered, uh, that those we desire to see come to know the Lord and worship Christ as Savior, uh, they have questions of us um, if we profess to be Christians, and so we should be well equipped to answer questions. Um, so that's the reasoning for it, uh, but, but more than that, we, we hope that it's not just a, a lecture series, that we don't want to just answer questions. We want our affections to be stirred for our King as we work through, through things and see that Scripture truly does provide answers. Um, and it, it increases our faith, not because we have greater knowledge, but because of who we have a greater knowledge of. Uh, we, we better see who our God is. And, and today, that question, uh, the question is specifically about God. Um, and it, as Scott read it this morning, why would a loving God? I think it's, it's reasonable to re- replace loving there with good. I'll talk about that in, in just a minute. But why would a good God or a loving God create us knowing that evil would come and we would sin? And then as a result, we'd need salvation. So if he knew that sin would come if, and evil and suffering and, and all that comes with sin, if he knew that would come and he would have to save us, why even create us at all? That's the basis of the question. But more than giving you an answer this morning, I aim that you would be in awe of God when we finish answering this question, that you would you'd want to worship him. We'd want to sing these songs. We'd want to partake in communion. That we'd want to leave this place and live on mission. Not because I give you an awesome answer and you're like, all the problems are solved. Uh, but because you hear of the character of our God. You see clearly from Scripture. You hear logically from a philosophical argument. You hear uh, through theology. You see clearly, again, in Scripture. That's the, that's the pattern we're going to follow this morning. I'm going to read Scripture and then I'm going to give you some ph- philosophical ideas. And then I'm going to give you a theological reasoning, and then I'm going to go back to Scripture. Uh, Once you hear all of this, I hope you want to worship Jesus. I I don't want you to just be satisfied with information. Uh, So so bear that in mind as we walk through uh, some of this. And I'm just going to read, I just picked several verses that talk specifically to this, because the question is kind of complicated, uh, just in the fact that it has so many things to it. Uh, It's questioning God's character. Uh, it's, It's questioning His sovereignty. It's Question his his uh, his ability to to know things, um, and it, and it's it's got a question in there about evil in the world, about suffering, about sin, and all these things are worth asking. And so, I'm just going to read some scripture that kind of addresses first who God is. First John four eight nine. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. 1 John 4, jump down to verse 16. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in Him. John 3, 16. This one's less common, so you may not know it. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that anyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. John 15, 12, and 13. If you haven't picked up on it, John writes a lot about love. 
This is my command. Love one another as I loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. That's Jesus saying that. And the Apostle Paul also writes to this understanding of God and his love in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For rarely will someone die for just a, a person, for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's concerning his love, concerning his goodness, because I think that's what this question is really about. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is a person who takes refuge in him. Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, the rich young ruler asks Jesus about goodness, and he responds with, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And Mark's account of this, he says, Only God is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So I read all those, first of all, to show you that you can easily go to Scripture, search for love, search for goodness, and have your head around what God has to say about goodness and about love. But I read those because if you believe the Bible's true, so for all Christians who believe the Bible is true, we've walked through this in our first sermon of this series and earlier this year. If we, if we trust the Word of God, then God is good. God is love. It's very evident. It's declared and demonstrated throughout Scripture. And so it would be inappropriate and inaccurate to suggest anything else. He is good. He is loving. So to argue against it, especially with subjectivity, to, to make it about your perspective, like, I don't think God's good because of these things, it's, it's totally off base. And so coming at it philosophically, the Creator defines what's good and loving, not us. All that he does is right. And if we disagree, it's not his goodness that is flawed. It's our perspective of what is good and what is loving. This isn't a cop-out. It's soundly logical. If he is infinite and we're finite, if he's omnipotent and we lack power in any capacity, if he is omniscient and we don't have all knowledge, even if you combined all the brains of earth throughout history, then we must defer to his knowledge and his power and his reasoning. This is moral objectivity is, is a concept that people have to live by. If you want to claim something's good, you have to have some standard for it. And what greater standard than the creator of all things? If you don't, this is what having a God is about. If you don't have a standard of goodness, you don't have the option to declare something good and not good. And so the argument is simple. God is above all things because he's created all things. And so he defines goodness. And the reason I suggest goodness is in question more than love is because in, in English language, we really have some difficulty choosing which words to use for sit, which situations. we got more words than any language in the world, uh, but using the right one all the time isn't always the case. And so we, we use the word love a lot when we don't 
capture its fullness. Now, there's some ways you can work, work through Hebrew and, and through Greek languages and understand love in the different ways, and, and that's certainly a worthy study. But I'm not even going there. Just in the way we see love as a noun, or in this case, an adjective, loving, or, or a verb, um, it, it's got to be more than how we use it. So I love donuts, and I love pizza, and I love my wife, and I love my children. We know that those things are different contextually, um, but we mean the same thing for all of them. What I'm really saying is those things bring me delight. They make me happy. That they're enjoyable. So usually when we use the word love, we're talking about we enjoy something or we don't enjoy something. Um, but I think more true to its meaning, that it certainly is included, more true to its meaning is uh, as a verb, the sacrificial thing, that even if it doesn't benefit me, even if it doesn't make me happy, even if my family fails me, I still love them. I would give my life for my family without hesitation. It's instinctive because that's love. They don't have to deserve it. They don't have to earn it. I just love them. I'm never going to give my life for pizza or a donut. Some might, not me. So we understand love needs to have a bigger, broader uh, thing when we talk about it. But goodness, I think, is a part of that. I think goodness is captured in love. And so specifically, and just to try to be fair to the question as I work through it in different ways, um, I think more accurately, this is a question of goodness. It seems specifically the question is of God's character. Is it, does he have good character? Uh, so why do bad things happen to good people is reasonable. If God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? Objectively speaking, that's only ever happened one time. And he, he volunteered for that. He laid down his life. There's only been one good person. Only one deserving of good things, and he took on sin and death and overcame it, praise God. But goodness, um, God's goodness included that. In fact, Acts 2.23, we see, according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, Christ laid down his life. It was a part of the plan that that evil would be on the only one who didn't deserve it. So then we get into a conversation of suffering and the effects of evil in the world cause suffering. And, and what's beautiful is it seems to matter to God. We see in Scripture that He tells us to fight evil and do justice. He tells us to lament the suffering, to mourn with those who mourn, to grieve. Virtually every book of the Bible addresses suffering to some extent and the effects of sin. God sees it and He cares. And so He addresses the needs. Trying to understand the nuances of this question, to be fair to it in every way I can, I want to phrase it like this. If God is loving, and by that we mean good and for our good, and he, is, and he knew we'd sin, so He's omniscient. He knows all things, including that evil would come into the world and, and suffering would be a result of that and punishing that evil would be a part of that, then why would He still create us? I think that's the question we need to answer. He's good. He's loving. He knew all things, so why still create us? It's not really a question of why does evil exist. It's more of what's the point? Now, if I had coffee with somebody or I'm just fielding questions from a crowd and I don't have time to prepare for it, I think my, my, right, my initial answer, my gut reaction to this question would be knowing that we'd sin 
is not reason enough to abort creation. Knowing that there would be suffering isn't reason enough for God to not create. And I know that logically because that's not even true of us. Like knowing suffering would exist isn't a deterrent from loving good parents having kids. We have babies all the time. We bring them to this world that we know they're going to suffer. Like just to, just to speak for myself, I know my kids are going to face the typical difficult things in life. Like they're going to have to do homework. Like they're going to hate it. They're going to they're going to face bullying and heartbreak and sickness. Like I know those very typical normal types of suffering are ahead of them. And there's also the possibility that truly horrific things happen to them. Like terminal illness or some some form of assault or some deeper traumas, emotional pains. I know those things are a possibility and I hate it. I hate that is reality. I hate evil. I hate the effects of sin. And knowing my children are coming up into this world where that's everywhere, and they're going to have all kinds of things to work through and pains to experience, and I can't stop it from happening. I hate it. But having them in my life is still better than not having them. Now, of course, God is not limited as I am, and His thoughts are far beyond my thoughts, and in measurable ways, He's beyond us, and He knows specifically what's coming for us, and He knew specifically what we'd have to endure, and He knew exactly what evils would come into the world and how they would affect us, and He knows that even after we're saved, after we're justified, after we're brought back into the family, He knows we'll still struggle with those sins. He knows it all. So there has to be something more to his reasoning and his purpose than he just wants to have us. So now thinking theologically, since we don't know fully philosophically, thinking theologically, let's start with God created all things. We know that. He created all things with purpose and he called them good. And then the serpent deceived us and we bought into the lie and, and we were broken. We rebelled from this from this goodness, and we sought out goodness in our own strength, in our own ability, and, and since then, we have been running and hiding and trying to find satisfaction everywhere else, and, and God, being just, has, has a, a, ne- a necessary compulsion to punish this sin, this wrongdoing, because He's right, and He's good, and He's just. He must punish this sin, but He's also rich in mercy, And so perfect in his justice and perfect in his love, he punishes evil on the cross. He pours it out on Christ. He bears, Christ bears the wrath of God aimed at us, the sinner. And he absorbed it. And he died. And he rose from the dead and left death in the grave. And we see him caring for us loving us. We see him as good in this work. Even if we don't have the answers definitively to to resolve the problem, we know our God knew sin would come and he made a plan for it. In fact, the plan was that he would step in and he would empathize. He would feel the suffering with us. He would bear the pain. And we see it all throughout scripture. Even the angry Old Testament God people talk about grieves sin with us. And In Genesis 6, 6, he sends a flood, but before it talks about 
He's grieving the sins of man that he would have to destroy the sinner. In Psalm 78, 40, it talks about his grieving the sins of Israel. And throughout the gospel narratives, we see Jesus going with his people, feeling the pain, being among the sinners. He weeps when there's death because of the sin. He grieves the death of Lazarus because of the sin. He grieves the death of his cousin, John. There's mystery to grasping the origins of evil, but we need to pause long enough to see there's, there's complexity in the unsearchable ways of our Lord as well. That He would step into this, knowing it exists, knowing what it feels like from a, from a distance, it seems. He steps into it to empathize, to, to feel it with us. That's Jesus. That's our good and loving God. So we can't fully get it. But we can see what our God's about, who He is and what He's done and what He continues to do. He knew sin would come. It grieves His heart, yet He created us anyway. What's more is if our suffering is this this dark river, imagine if you will, a dark river with depth flowing quickly with a strong current, and we've got to somehow get through it, Jesus alone has made it through. And shown us the way if we would just follow him. The river's before us. The suffering's unavoidable. We don't have any way around it in our own strength. It certainly will drag us down. If not for Jesus showing us the way to our salvation. And it's guaranteed that you'll be swept away. And you'll drown in this dark river of sorrow without him. Suffering comes. But he's made a way. Because he's good and he's loving. Nevertheless... Some debris is going to hit you along the way. Even if you're following Jesus, it hurts to suffer. But He works all things out for the good of those who love Him. And He makes beautiful things rise up from the ashes. So even in our suffering, there's goodness. So a life of avoiding suffering and being anxious about the the evil things all around us and not knowing what to do is antithetical to to the gospel message. It's It's against what Christ has set before us. And in His suffering, He gave us this biblical challenge. The challenge for us today is not just to believe these theoretical things, but to cling to hope and embrace the suffering. In fact, I I could even say it, don't waste your suffering. It's going to come. It's going to happen. Don't let it be a waste. But follow this example that Jesus set for us. Before he's murdered on the cross, he's in the garden praying, feeling the crushing weight of sin, knowing that suffering is a necessary part of this. Still, he prays, God, if there's any other way, remove the suffering, remove this heavy weight. Yet he knows it's the will of God, and so he submits himself to it. And in that obedient submission to the Father, he would gain a redemption and a restoration of all things for those he loves. And so he gave himself up to it, and he used it. He used the suffering. He didn't merely endure it. He didn't despise it. He didn't defy it. He didn't avoid it, though he certainly could have. He leaned into it. Trusting the Father. You could say he embraced the joy set before him because he knew what what it would bring about. That the Father would be glorified and that we would be saved. For our good and to the glory of God, he used the suffering in the same way we submit ourselves to it. 
to use it. And just as God has exalted Christ to, to be the name above every name, we too will be exalted. So, so let me be clear. I, I know what's behind the question. We hate evil. We hate sin. We don't want to suffer. So how could God be good if that exists? And I know some of you are standing in the depths of that river. And I know life is weighing down on you. And if I could fix it, I would. But I can't. And if I could fix it in my own life, I would. But I can't. But I can encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Cling to the hope because he's given it to you. He's shown a way. He's shined a light. He's gone before you as our older brother, as our king, as our savior. He's stepped through the waters to, to walk the path that we need to walk. And we can trust him. He lights the way. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's our salvation. He alone has made it through and given us the way. In fact, he is the way. If we would just follow him. If you trust him. It's not in vain. Exaltation will come. Glorification comes for us. There is hope. There's reason to be hopeful. And it's not, it's not going to come about because you, you anxiously toil and try to control every part of your life. That's going to crush you. You will be glorified with the Son because He's faithful. And, and on that day when restoration comes, it'll be greater and more satisfying than any goodness that Adam and Eve ever had in the garden. Because of the suffering, because of the evil, because of the sin in the world. It's like cutting sugar out of your diet and then all of a sudden fruit tastes like candy until you have candy. We suffer. We have taste. We have glimpses of the goodness. It's all but a shadow of what's to come. So there's reason to be hopeful. All the suffering, every second of the suffering is meaningful because God uses it for good. And that's been God's plan all along. From before the beginning, He's intended it this way, and God has never lost control. But it's then a reasonable question to ask, what is the purpose? What's God's purpose? What's His plan? If this was a part of the plan all along, then what's the plan? The short answer is that He would be glorified and worshipped by all of creation. That He would have all glory. That it would be all about Him. That all of creation would exist to sing His praises. That's our God because He's worthy of it. But also we reap the benefits. It's for our good. For God's glory and our good. But let's unpack that to be fair to whomever asked this question. Because God's glory is an easy answer. Looking into Ephesians chapter 2, back to the Bible. So we walk through some philosophy and some theology back to Scripture. And this is, that's all wrapped up into one, you know that. So philosophy, theology, scripture, it's all, it's all there. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read uh, 10 verses. And as I read, I want you to think on our four questions. Who is God? What's He done? Who are we? And what do we do? And you're thinking about who are we, also see who we used to be. So who is God? What's He done? Who are we? And then what do we do? Starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the, in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. 
And we were by nature children of under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he has had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heaven in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves it is God's gift not from works so that no one can boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are saved by grace through faith. That is, you were justified by grace through faith, declared innocent by grace through faith. You can do nothing, but his grace is enough. He's given us this gift of faith. None of your works gained it. And you are sanctified, this ongoing work of salvation, the making you holy, the conforming you into the image of Christ is by grace through faith. This faith is a gift of God that you could see Christ rightly. It's not about how big your faith is. It's about how big the one is you have faith fixed upon. And it's by grace given freely. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. He gives it to you. By grace, through faith. To what end? That He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace. God's purpose was to create a world in which His glory could be manifest in its fullness. He will exalt us so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through the kindness He shows to us through Christ Jesus. The universe was created to display God's glory. In its very existence, it it sings praises. It's all throughout the Psalms, specifically Psalm 19. The universe, the heavens and the earth, exist to praise God. To His glory they exist. Then also, both in His grace for us and the wrath He pours out on sinners... God's glory is on display. That's found in Romans 1, 18-25. He's glorified by revealing His wrath to those who fail to worship Him. As it turns out, the world that best displays the glory of God in its fullness is the world we have. We are chosen people who have lost our way and sold out to sin As children of wrath, we all deserve that. So God is right and just and glorified in pouring it out. But He is full of mercy. He's rich in mercy. So when He demonstrates His grace to save us from that wrath, He is glorified as a loving Savior. We've been redeemed, bought back from the darkness through faith in order that He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace. The fullness of His glory includes both the wrath and the mercy on display throughout history and for all eternity. Our God is glorified both by evil being punished and Him saving those who certainly don't deserve it because we're children of wrath. 
We wouldn't possibly know that mercy if not for the fall into sin. We would never know what it's like to taste the sweetness of grace. We wouldn't be able to comprehend it unless we first needed mercy. We wouldn't know joy. We wouldn't know redemption. We wouldn't know love, hope, or peace, or the pleasure of His goodness if not for the fall. So praise God that we do know sin. All that said, we also understand salvation and assurance of salvation isn't pinned to having an answer to a question. It's not about reason or logic. It's not about more knowledge. So we can't give you the answer that satisfies your soul. That requires faith. Truth sets you free. Yes, we proclaim truth so that you'll find freedom, but it's faith that saves your soul. It's right belief in that truth, and it's wisdom that guides your life, and that's right application of that knowledge. The knowledge itself is insufficient for your soul. Now, I mention this not because I have a problem with learning. I certainly don't. I love it. I, I've pursued it, and I hope to continue to pursue it. But we have to know its limits. Faith comes by a way of miracle, not education. The blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. If we aren't led to worship God in this, it's for nothing. If you hear me proclaiming God's glory is what this is all about and it doesn't stir your affections to worship Him because the answer wasn't sufficient, then you missed it. If being informed doesn't drop from your head down into your heart and transform you, so that you worship Him, then there will never be gospel fruit. The answers aren't good enough. In fact, it seems common that knowledge becomes an idol that we easily worship because it seems sufficient. But its fruit is pride and the shaming of others and us thinking highly of ourselves. It's the exact opposite of gospel fruit. Let me say it like this. I've yet to see knowledge keep any man or any woman from pursuing an adulterous relationship. Pastors and biblical scholars and PhDs in theology destroy their lives pursuing sin, not because they lack information. Because they don't worship the God of this truth. So I can give you philosophical answers. I can walk through theologically why sin exists. But let's praise the God who wrote this. Let's praise the one behind this truth. May it be true of us that the knowledge of God expands our view of Him, increasing our faith. May it humble us and store our affections for Him that we wouldn't want to live life for ourselves for a second because we see how good it is to live life for Him. That we would be dead to ourselves and alive in Christ as He is mercifully, mercilessly, mercifully, that's not a word, I can't make it work, as He is graciously given to us. May it be true of the crossing church that we're marked by our love for God and how it compels us to mission. Not because we have all the answers. Because like we've said from the beginning, we don't. But that we're humbled because we don't have the answers. And we know a God who does. That He would be glorified. As we repent of sin because we're sinners. Now as as the band comes back up to lead us in, in the praise of Him, I want to answer this question. 
succinctly. Why would a loving God create us knowing evil would come and we would sin? In short, sin serves the overall purposes of God. All things are for His glory. It's by His design that it would exist because it brings Him glory to save us from it and to punish evildoers. God hates sin and God hates evildoers. Our God knew we would sin and He created us anyway. He knew the necessary cost. He knew the cross would be the answer and He created us anyway. He knew the struggle we would endure even as Christians wrapped up in our sinful ways and He created us anyway. The ultimate expression and exhibition of God's glory is on the cross of Christ where wrath, justice, mercy, and love had this messy, gruesome, beautiful, wonderful collision. So brother and sister, he knew you'd fail again and again. But like any loving father, he kneels with his arms open for you to come back to him. And so let's do that to the glory of the king. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how you are always good, even when we don't understand it. I thank you that you always love, for you are love, even if we have...